Be careful what you wish for, right? Okay, so let's see. Can we name them? All right. And since we have our, our young folks are in here today, we're going to let them have first crack at this. So if you think you know one of the commandments, yell it out to me and I'll check it off the list and I'll read you the actual command. So anybody got one? What was that one? I didn't hear. Do not bear false witness. Okay, let me find that one. Um, okay, here we go. That is commandment number nine. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. All right, one down. Who, who else has one? What do you got? Respect your parents. Okay, that's a very good one. Their, their parents are, are beaming with pride right now. Okay, that's number five. It reads, honor your father and your mother that you may live long, a long time in the land the Lord your God is giving to you. So that's number five. Who else has one? Just shout it out. No other gods. Okay, let's try that one. Um, depending on how you number them, that would be number one. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. How about another one? Don't steal. Okay, that one's easy. Number eight, you shall not steal. Very quick and to the point. Anything else? Murder. Okay, we got number six, you shall not murder. That's an easy one. What was that one? Adultery. Adultery. Okay, let's find that one. That's a really important one. Okay, that's number seven. You shall not commit adultery. Another succinct one. Don't go chasing waterfalls is not a, a commandment. <laughs> However, Prince did write that song, so we should pay attention to it. What else we got? We still have a few missing. Well, okay, the Sabbath and the Lord's name in vain. Let's do those. Number four, the Sabbath is the, is the longest one. Um, remember the Sabbath day to set it apart as holy. For six days you may labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work or your son, or your daughter, or your male servant, or your female servant, or your cattle, or a resident foreigner who is in your gates. Resident foreigner means immigrant. Um, and then somebody said, uh, don't take the name of the Lord in vain. That's number three. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold guiltless anyone who takes his name in vain. There are a couple more. Yeah. All right. That's good. Perfect. Um, so that's number 10. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, <clears throat> nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that belongs to your neighbor. That's number 10. There's one left. Yeah, idols. So number two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or that is below the water. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. All right, sweet. Redemption Church, you knew all 10, put together. <laughs> Impressive. So these 10 commandments are sort of like the heart and soul of the Jewish law. 
to be Jewish is, in a sense, to embrace the Ten Commandments. Uh, some scholars even think that they limited them to ten so that they could keep track while they were on their fingers while they were memorizing them. Although the goal was not just to know them, but to follow them, which involves, as we talked about last week, this long, open-ended conversation about um, what they mean. And part of why they are so important is that the, the Ten Commandments, they're, they're the heart, and they're kind of a shortcut to the law as a whole. And the reason they needed the law in the first place um, is because they were slaves for 10 generations. For centuries, Pharaoh had, had given them what they needed to survive, including structures and laws and customs to live by. And this was a problem that Yahweh, their God, would have to address. And the problem involves this phenomenon um, that happens when people live under like a tight bureaucracy like that of Egypt. Uh, in fact, there's this um, German-American philosopher named Hannah Arendt who described this phenomenon in her work. I love this picture of her. Look at her sitting there. She, Hannah does not care what you think of her. I love this. She's just smoking a cigarette, reading philosophy alone at a table in the dining hall or the faculty dining room at Princeton University. It's so great. She actually, she's, she's bad to the bone, man. She escaped Nazi Germany and fled to America where she wrote extensively on politics and violence. She was brilliant. She's a first female lecturer ever at the University of Princeton. And she said that when people live under a massive bureaucracy, they get out of the habit of using certain natural human capacities. They, they don't even need to be slaves. They just need to live within a bureaucracy or what we called a few weeks ago a totalism. Remember that word? When this this self-contained, intertwined systems that give us everything that we could want. Arendt uses the word bureaucracy instead of that. It's kind of the same thing. She said, when you got a bureaucracy doing all your thinking for you, telling you what's right and wrong, what to strive for and ignore what's possible and what isn't, what happens over time is that people lose their ability to do even kind of simple kinds of moral reflection. In effect, she says, they lose their moral imagination. Moral as in knowing the difference between right and wrong and imagination as, as in the, the ability to kind of conceive of or conjure like an image or projection of a world that's different from the one that we live in. And Arendt said that the loss of moral imagination is how you end up with like millions of people following a psychopath, right? Because they've, they've been swallowed up by a bureaucracy and lost their moral imagination. Because within that bureaucracy or the totalism, they don't need to do moral reflection. The bureaucracy does all those calculations, for them. And Arendt said that we lose our moral imagination, if we lose it, we can easily become co-opted by a state or a, a cause or a charismatic figure or a movement. And, and even maybe involved in horrible evil. And we don't even realize that's what's going on. That, that, that's how we end up with like Egyptians throwing babies into the Nile or the Nazi regime or how you know, modern-day racist and fascist movements can still find people who are willing to take part. She wrote one time, the sad truth is that most evil is done by people who never make up their minds to be good or evil. And she, she made this observation, actually, while um, observing the trial of Adolf Eichmann, one of the guys who carried out Hitler's final solution for the German 
Third Reich. Eichmann was found hiding in 1960 in Argentina and brought to, uh, to uh, Jerusalem and put on trial. And Arendt traveled over to observe it and, and write about it. And um, she, was, she wrote about it and said she was expecting to find a monster, you know, like an evil incarnate, just a, a disturbed man consumed by anger and grievance toward the Jewish people. She never saw that. What she saw, she said, was frighteningly normal. A man who had just been lulled to sleep by bureaucracy and had just completely lost his moral imagination. And her point was, this can really happen to anybody. It's a chilling observation, right? She called this the banality of evil. Anybody heard that phrase, the banality of evil? It's really her biggest phrase. It's kind of what she's known for saying. And it really just means um, evil doesn't come, doesn't stem from uh, like a, a bunch of mustache-twisting villains hatching some evil plan. It's not doofenshmirtz, right? Evil emerges from a people just lulled to sleep by the bureaucracies and totalisms of their day until they lose their moral imagination. She said, evil comes from a failure to think. It defies thought, for as soon as a thought tries to engage itself with evil and examine the premises and principles from which it originates, it is frustrated because it finds nothing there. That is the banality of evil. What Arendt thought, and it's actually kind of pretty orthodox Christian thought, is that evil exists not as a thing, but as an absence of a thing, the absence of the good. Evil has no like ontology, if you know what that means, no being, no agency. Evil's more like a vacuum or a void where the good ought to be, but it isn't. So evil isn't so much a thing as the lack of a thing, a lack of the good. But for someone who's lost their moral imagination, they don't even notice. They lose the ability to sense that, that it's not there, right? And, and this is how they become caught up in evil. They just don't notice that goodness, rightness, righteousness is, is missing. And because evil is not a thing, but the absence of those things, it, it's, it can't be discerned. And this is how, she says, or why, she says, evil cannot be the basis of something truly new. That's what she thought. Evil can't create something new. It can only destroy something old. She said it like this. She said, good can be radical. And by radical, she means it can be the basis of something Unimaginable, something really new, like a fundamental change that goes all the way down. Good can be the basis of that kind of change. And that's the kind of change that they're needing here, the children of Israel, um, of Israel out there in the wilderness. Good can be radical, she says. Evil can never be radical. It can only be extreme. For it possesses neither depth nor any demonic dimension, yet it can spread like a fungus over the surface of the earth and lay waste to the entire world. Evil comes from a failure to think. So evil is not some independent power that can possess us out of nowhere. Evil is not like a, a demigod or, or like the equal and opposite god to the god that we know of. Often people who try to, to blame everything, that every little thing goes wrong on, on, on demons. They're just trying to avoid their own complicity in what's happening in their lives, their own participation, right, in the way that evil can captivate people's moral imagine, imagination. This is how evil gets going. Arendt says, it comes from 
a failure to think, uh, the loss of a moral imagination. Rent said that when she's watching Eichmann testify at that trial, it was surreal. He didn't foam at the mouth. He didn't like spout conspiracy theories about the Jewish people. She said he spoke kind of like a postal worker about how, to, how the mail gets delivered. It, it was just kind of a mindless bureaucrat, this guy who structured the final solution. And, he, and they would ask him, like, didn't you feel bad? Like, didn't you think something's wrong with what I'm doing here? And he was like, no, see, they, they just, like, brought me this piece of paper. And the paper said, you have to take a million Jews to Auschwitz. And so that's what I did. And that, it was just, that's all the more that they got him. What he was doing was profoundly evil, but he was too thick to realize it. He was almost less than human, as in he couldn't use all of his human faculties of reason, in, in particular, the, the ability to do moral reflection. It was gone. Couldn't think like a normal person who's created in the image of God can think. And Arendt said, that's where evil comes from. This failure to be able to think in moral categories. And this, she says, can spread like a fungus and begin to affect whole societies. And I look around at our world today and I, I can see what she means. And that's the real danger that the children of Israel are facing there in the wilderness. They don't need to just get out of Egypt, right? They need to get Egypt out of themselves. And for that, they have to have a moral imagination. But they don't have one right now. So this is a, an incredibly tenuous moment for the people of God. And so God brings them out of Egypt and then out into the wilderness, into this long season, 40 years of disorientation that we talked about last week. They're completely confused. I mean, they're trying to believe, but they don't really know anything about God, right? And they're, they're happy to be free, but they sort of want to go back to Egypt and, and keep doing what they were doing. And they can't figure out how to organize themselves now that Pharaoh's bureaucracy isn't telling them what to do constantly. And so the, the way that God chooses to counteract this whole problem or set of problems is to build within them a sense of um, God's terms for the wise use of the world. To try and teach them like the difference between stewardship and exploitation of things like people and land and relationships and resources. And, and the way that God does this is he gives them the Jewish law, beginning with the Ten Commandments. And um, God's agenda with this is not just to give them a new bureaucracy, that will substitute for the bureaucracy of Pharaoh, substitute for, in a sense, their moral imagination. God gives them the commands and the law so that they can develop their own moral imagination, one that is, is more in line with God's um, plans for the world. And, and so God began this process with the Ten Commandments. It's interesting, too, that um, the Jewish and Catholic and Protestant traditions Split these up in different ways, of course. They can't just go with the same 10, right? So they're, they're actually just a little bit different. Here they are side by side. You can see that the Jewish version splits out, I am the Lord your God who is taking you out of the land of Egypt and the house of bondage, right? That's the first command. It's just naming who God is. And then you shall have no other gods is taken as the second command for them. And then you have the, the Protestants. They pull out no graven images, 
right? This was kind of a dig on the Catholics and um, who had all those statues of Mary around, right? And th then the Catholics separate coveting your neighbor's wife from coveting your neighbor's property, right? Paging Dr. Freud for a moment. Um, it, it, and it's interesting how these different versions sort of emphasize different aspects of what God is, is trying to do through these, these um, hadabarim, these, it's not really commands, it just means words, these words from God. By the way, these words are for insiders to the people of God. I mean, the guy who wants to hang these in the public spaces is totally on the wrong track. That's not what they're for. They're for the people of God, not for the public. These are special for, those, for, for the, what we would call the church. We're part of the Protestant tradition, so, so we'll kind of go with that structure. But however you organize them, there are always 10, so they're kind of easy to learn and memorize. And they are divisible into two groups. The first group are commands about how to relate to God. Don't have other gods. Don't make graven images. Don't take God's name in vain. And then the second group are commands about how to relate to each other. Keep the Sabbath. Honor your parents. Don't murder, commit adultery, steal, bear false witness, or covet any of your neighbor's things, right? And it's kind of interesting that only three apply to God and seven apply to um, the neighbor is it to say relating to God is not nearly as difficult as relating to each other. Um, but notice that all 10 of them are given in relatively general terms. It's not much detail, short to the point. And there are no instructions on how they should be applied to vague situations in life. And so in order to decide that kind of thing, the children of Israel will have to begin to do their own moral reflection. So God gives them these 10 words, these 10 commands, hadabarim. And then at the end of chapter 20, and then all of chapter 21, 22, 23, and part cha um, chapter 24, are these um, detailed sections of the law that we heard um, just a uh, snippet of read earlier um, by a reader today. Um, these are sort of like case studies on how to obey the 10 commandments. There's several chapters of them. And you can tie each of these case studies back to a specific commandment. And so what you have is, is kind of this example for the people of God of the heart of the law. And then these examples of how to do moral reflection, how to develop your moral imagination by just considering how to apply the Ten Commandments. And so it begins with like instructions about altars and idols, which ties back to you shall have no other gods before me. Don't make graven images. And there's a whole section we read earlier about Sabbath keeping. And, and, and the Sabbath keeping is not just about one day of the week called Sabbath and how to keep it. It becomes like a, a general principle of stewardship of anything that can be used up or spoiled, right? So it, Sabbath actually applies to anything valuable. Every seven days there's Sabbath, but every seven years there's a sabbatical year where all the land gets rest. And all the slaves go free and debts are canceled. So, so everything has to be stewarded with this Sabbath principle so as not to exploit things that are fragile. The commandment um, that says do not murder is kind of obvious and straightforward. But what happens if it's an accident? What do you do then? What if someone starts a fight with you? You didn't even see it coming. And in the midst of the, the fight, a bystander is killed. It handles that. What if you only 
injure or maim somebody and don't kill them? What, what, what does it do? So the cases tell them, okay, this is how we're going to handle those cases. They have to come up with this in moral discourse. There's one, it's hilarious. What, what if a bull, not hilarious, that's a bad word, but it's peculiar. What if a bull, your bull, gores another human being and kills them? What, what happens then? Well, then you don't kill the, the owner, you kill the bull, unless it's not the first time, which means the guy didn't kill the bull the first time. He kept it, kept making money off it. In that case, you kill the bull and the owner, right? Both are put to death. So, so the law just goes through what to do in all of these peculiar cases, but it's all rooted in one commandment, do not murder. Now, a lot of these commands carry the death penalty, which seems incredibly harsh to modern ears. But you have to remember, these things are written for ancient Near Eastern culture. They're about sheep and bride prices and oxen and slavery, most of the things that are not really part of our world. And in fact, most of them have no direct application to our world, which means we have to have our own moral imagination to even read the law of Moses. And how we do this is what we're trying to do is discern um, beneath the law God's general terms for the right use of the world. And then work to apply those terms still to this day to our own context in our specific life. And so the law is, is not like a description of like a, a utopian society or some perfect bureaucracy that will do all of our thinking for us. It's forming a moral imagination, a sensitivity, you could say, to the things that God cares about, like an intuition for the wise use of the world that will help shape them to become human as human is meant to be. The law teaches them things like you need to value life itself, value social and economic justice, and good neighboring should build an aversion to any kind of exploitation, a sense of reverence for God and each other and the world and even ourselves, a desire to protect vulnerable things, people, relationships, the earth, animals, and those are the kind of basic building blocks then of a moral imagination. And, and, and it's all rooted in the law, but it actually goes beyond the law, further than the law, into the things the law couldn't even think about, like how to steward a smartphone, right? Most of these aren't commands that people like us can still directly follow. But beneath the law, there's a moral imagination, drawn from the character of God who sets the terms for the use of creation. And so most of these laws are not specifically um, applicable to our own lives, but the principles embedded within them are the same types of issues that will always have to be worked out within the life of a local congregation like ours. And to do that work constantly over the course of a lifetime will produce in us a moral imagination, and that's what God's looking for. People whose instincts are, are formed in, in the way God intends. They're shaped by God's commands and a lot of struggle with how to be faithful um, with, with what we might call, um, in our parlance, we would call it the spirit of the law. Not just the letter, but the spirit of the law. And in a sense, God's will for the world is the spirit of the law. God's will for the world is the spirit of the law. And so these laws became part of a covenant, a deal between humanity and God or the people of God and Yahweh. And they, they would keep the laws 
and stay in the fight and struggle to figure out what being faithful looked like. And, and through this, God would build in them a moral imagination and lead them forward into deeper and deeper truths and truer and truer ex- expressions of obedience to the law. But this takes, you know, centuries, generations, millennia. So, for instance, there are all these laws that, if broken, carry the death penalty, right? You read them, and you're like, this is kind of weird. But over the years, more laws were added. Leviticus, Deuteronomy has restatements. And, and then more commentary on the law. The, the, um, the prophets weighed in. And then the oral Torah, the, the Midrash, the teaching of the rabbis, all this kind of modified their application, their moral discourse about those laws that had a penalty of death to the point at which by the modern era, they had put in so many restrictions and roadblocks in place. It was virtually impossible to put somebody to death for violating the Torah. They they reinterpreted their own law. All because for centuries, this moral reflection occurred among Jewish believers whose imagination was shaped by the Ten Commandments. Same thing goes for like all the animal sacrifice laws. They don't do that stuff anymore, but they still see themselves as upholding the spirit of those laws. The treatment of women is obviously a problem in the Jewish law. But for their day, it was actually quite progressive, giving women far more rights and protections than you would see in other ancient cultures. And they latched onto that. That spirit is, is underneath the law. It clearly didn't go far enough, right? I mean, women in the ancient world were always only settled through men. And this is a problem, right? That, that can't work. But through the years, it has often been um, Jewish believers and Christians who lead the way toward greater and greater rights for women. Um, not all Christians, obviously, um, But those leading the way were very often Jews and Christians because over time their moral imaginations asked them to go much further down into the spirit of the law. And and this brought them to, you know, help work for the emancipation of women from the patriarchy. Can I get an amen from all the women in the crowd, right? Slavery is another one. It's a real problem. I want to treat this a little with a little more detail because a lot of times this gets thrown up to me as a reason people stop believing. They say the Bible teaches slavery. The Hebrew word um, sometimes translated slave is aved, which occurs many, many times in the Bible. Its primary meaning is not slave, it's servant, which would be something like bond servant or indentured servant, if you remember your high school history class. It really wasn't until the 1980s that modern translations started taking that word and changing it from servant to slave. It's kind of a controversy. I think it was a mistake because it's terribly misleading. This concept of Aved is important because in the ancient world, there was no social security. There was no welfare or unemployment. Someone fell into poverty. This Aved, this indentured servitude, was their way out. So someone living in, in desperate prov- poverty for whatever reason, it could be uh, sickness in the family, a war, uh, gambling debt, uh, you know, foolishness, could be anything. But if they got into huge trouble and they're about to lose everything or be you know, um, in, in huge debt and, and about to get you know, beat up by the debtors, um, they could ask the head of another household to take them on 
as an Aved, which did not mean buy them as a human being. What they purchased were um, the rights to their land and property and their stuff and to their labor. But this came with particular obligations. That head of the household would have to agree to manage their land and their affairs and make them profitable again. He also had to pay their debts. He had to treat them as part of his own household, which meant protecting them. He had to give them work and pay them a living wage. He was not allowed to mistreat them or break up their family. They were allowed to observe the Sabbath. They had all of the civil rights as, as anybody who was part of the Hebrew people. It was almost more like a um, financial conservatorship. And, and if he made those affairs profitable, he got to keep the profits. That was a deal. But only for a maximum of six years. When the next sabbatical year came around, they would be released from their agreement, their debts would be canceled, and their land would be returned, hopefully now turning a profit. And the wealthy household could have made a little money, but also would have helped this neighbor to survive that down period. It was not a perfect situation, but it's not the slavery that we imagine when we hear that word, right? When we hear slave, we think of plantation slaves. We think of racism and um, the, the purchase, the ownership of human beings by other humans and then the way they were brutalized and dehumanized and murdered and raped and treated as livestock. And we think of families just broken up and the denial of basic human rights. There is no excuse for that. The Bible does not allow for that. Not even in the Old Testament. The Bible does not condone that. This Hebrew word eved has nothing to do with that concept. In fact, that kind of treatment is expressly prohibited in Hebrew law. So if someone like throws out the Bible condones slavery to you, you, I mean, you can answer back. It most certainly does not. What we think of as, as slavery was, was forbidden. Um, they were not allowed to sell one of their children to a foreign person as an Aved. They weren't allowed to do that because they had different practices that were meant to restore them. If, if, if a man kidnapped someone to sell them into slavery, if that man was caught, he was put to death. If the head of a household beat an Aved and knocked out a tooth or, or an eye, the Aved would immediately be set free and all their stuff um, kicked in for the end of, of that. They were released and given um, their money and their land and their debts were taken care of. They were restored immediately. If he killed an Aved, he would be put to death. To take an Aved um, was not to own another human being like chattel. It was a financial agreement usually among neighbors, meant to keep people from losing their land permanently. And um, it, it was really meant to arrest any kind of cycle of generational poverty and to keep wealth from then concentrating in the hands of a very few at the top, like the pyramid, like in Egypt that they had just come out of. God's trying to give them a different moral imagination than that. It was, and it was done here through a form of neighboring, called Aved. And it was much more generous than the surrounding cultures of their day did for, you know, what they did for poor people. It was dog eat dog among them. Was it perfect? No, it was, it was not perfect. But is our, you know, method for handling poverty 
perfect. I mean, this is hard to do. And there are major problems with what they did, but there are just major problems with this. It's why we need to try something and then see how it goes and, and develop this moral imagination. You know, we've kind of been um, programmed to be embarrassed by the Old Testament laws, but I'm not. Um, when God seems implicated in things like patriarchy or slavery or racism or, or violence, we have to, to remember that those things are not initiated by God. They are initiated by broken people who are just caught in this complex web of sin in which all of humanity is, is caught and implicated. And God is trying to move them patiently, slowly, over time to a better place. But if God, if God wants to work with human communities, then God is stuck working with broken things. And if God is trying to move them slowly over time to a better place, it, it's going to involve the use of those things. If, if a human community is consumed by violence, then God has to find a way to work within the violence somehow, S usually subversively, slowly over time until they start to figure out, oh, this, this is not the way to go. They just couldn't, they didn't have the moral imagination for it at first until their imagination grows and they can finally say, okay, violence just begets more violence. So I don't, I don't think we need to be embarrassed by the law. I mean, we're not bound to the law, like under the law in the way that they thought of it back then, but we don't need to be squeamish about it. In the Exodus story, God's speaking to a people who know next to nothing about Yahweh. All they know about Yahweh is God brought them out of Egypt. That's pretty much all they know. So very often, they're putting words into God's mouth that later on, they'll be like, okay, I, I don't think that was what God was saying. I think that was totally us putting words in God's mouth. And they had to concede that they, they were doing this, that they sort of had it wrong. This isn't a problem. We're all a work in progress. Our, our communities are a work in progress. The, the law was just an early phase in the development of the moral imagination of the people of God. And it's one that prepared us so that when Christ appeared, we could receive a new covenant, a new law from him. His covenant is a covenant of grace and mercy and forgiveness, right? His law is a law of love, which, by the way, much more difficult law to keep, right? The law of love. His gospel is good news for strugglers, for the loss and the broken ragamuffins of the world. And, and we could have never gotten to the place where we could hear this new covenant, this new law, without the old one, right? And without the scores of unnamed Israelites who struggled to keep the law and wrestled with right and wrong and to know what was good and who tried their best to embody the good in their own lives and wound up undermining a lot of terrible things like racism and slavery and patriarchy and violence. I always think of Abraham Joshua Heschel, that rabbi, marching with Dr. King. Every time you see a picture of Dr. King, he's there representing the Hebrew people. Countering exploitation of the world and the misuse of power. These, these are faithful saints who have gone before us, who passed the law down to us and said, hold on to it. We don't just jettison the Old Testament. 
And we're not meant to ignore it or, you know, be embarrassed of it. We're meant to, to wrestle with it and let it give us our own moral imagination. And Jesus actually said, he addressed it head on when he's getting critiqued. He said, look, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. I'm trying to show you how to fulfill it, how to truly keep the law. And this involves discerning God's imagination for the world, developing our own moral imagination. And this requires a people who are committed to staying in the fight, to actually reading it, reading our history and knowing what it says and trying to best we can develop our own moral imagination and live in faithfulness to God's vision for the world. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for um, these crazy few chapters here in the middle of Exodus where having freed the people, you just started to, to hammer into them just slowly, painstakingly over time, a moral imagination. And here in our day and time, living under our own, you know, empire in our own set of totalisms and bureaucracies. We confess our deep need to be able to think and see the world morally. I pray that this story would sink down deep into our souls and mark the way we think about the world and you and our place in your kingdom. Amen. I invite you to stand now, and we're going to receive communion. And we invite anyone who calls on the name of Jesus to join us at the table. The way we do it is we just come forward row by row, and you'll be offered the elements, in, and they'll say to you, remember the body and blood of Christ, and you can say amen or say, I will remember. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, and served it to his followers and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, blessed it, passed it around. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, a new deal, better than the old deal between us and God, a deal based in grace and love and mercy, right? That's the deal now. And then he said, Every time you get together, eat this bread, drink this cup, take my life, my body and blood into your life, become made out of me, and then go out into the world to be salt and light. That's what it means to be a Christian. And he said, every time you get together, just do this, enact this again, and remember who you are and what you're here for. And so this is why we receive communion. Um, if you would join me, and let's bless um, this meal. Heavenly Father, um, we ask you to bless this bread and the cup. May it be to us um, spiritual food and drink, a means of your grace. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. To the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Will you come?